Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are you guys doing tonight? You doing all right? Yeah? Well, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's guest, author of I Suck at Girls, Justin Halpern. Thank you for coming. So I figured I'd do a little reading and then uh, talk for just a bit. And then any questions you have, feel free to ask, no matter what they are. If you want to ask about the shitty TV show I produced, by all means. Anything you want. Uh, all right, so story I'm going to read you right now is called A Man Takes His Shots and Then He Scrubs the Shit Out of Some Dishes. Between the ages of 16 and 19, each of my friends lost his virginity. One by one they fell until finally, at the age of 20, my friend Jeff and I were the only virgins left. I was in my second year of college and lived in a rundown five-bedroom house in Pacific Beach, San Diego with Jeff and three other close friends. The morning after a party we threw celebrating the end of the first semester, I stumbled out of my bedroom and found my roommates hanging out in the grease-stained kitchen. Any milk left, I asked, hoping to drown my hangover with Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Jeff had sex last night, my friend Dan said. I froze. Maybe he's joking, I thought. I looked at Jeff, who was standing in the corner of the room sipping a Gatorade with the swagger of someone who had won seven Super Bowls and knew it was no joke. Je Jeff had sex? Jeff? I said in disbelief. Well, fuck you too, dude, Jeff replied. Sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm just surprised. I'm happy for you, I said. I was not happy for him. Imagine you and a friend have been stranded on a desert island for the last five years. Then one day, you wake up and you see your friend on a raft in the ocean, paddling towards a rescue ship. Then as you scream, come back, don't leave me, your friend laughs and waves at you and then keeps paddling without even looking back. That's exactly how I felt in that moment. Didn't seem that terrible to be a virgin when I wasn't the only one. Now I was the only member left in the club, and it was awful. I never felt any pressure from my friends to have sex. Nobody was getting laid that regularly. And even Dan, who probably had more sex than any of my other friends, rarely talked about it for a reason he put rather eloquently. I play tennis every once in a while, but I don't brag about it because I suck at it. <laughs> but now that Jeff had had sex, I couldn't help but feel they had stepped into manhood, and I was on the outside looking in. It wasn't like I hadn't been trying. It's not like I had some special being awesome with the ladies gear that I just hadn't chosen to shift into. I'd always been terrified of talking to women and usually just avoided it. When I headed to college, I tried to relax and not obsess over having sex, hoping it would happen. It didn't. A couple months later, I finished my second year at San Diego State. During my sophomore year, I had played baseball. I played on the baseball team and spent 50 plus hours a week practicing, playing, attending classes, and studying. I didn't leave much time for a job, so when summer rolled around, I had to make all the money I'd need for the year. On the first day of summer break, Dan and I drove around in his Mazda, putting in applications at every restaurant, retail store, and hotel we could find. As we drove home from the last hotel, just before sunset, we stopped at a stoplight near the beach. Directly in front of us, hanging from a blank storefront in a strip mall, was a giant banner. Grand opening, Hooters, now hiring. That, uh, that'd be funny we applied to a Hooters. Dan said as the light turned green. We drove along quietly for a few moments. Yeah, we should apply there, I said. Yeah, that's a good idea, Dan said, <laughs> suddenly turning the wheel hard and making a screeching U-turn in the middle of the street. We parked out in front of the banner and went inside. The restaurant was still being built, so the inside was filled with construction workers and raw materials. In the corner were two men sitting at a desk, a big Korean man in his 20s and a five-foot-tall, grizzled white guy in his mid-40s wearing a Hooters t-shirt and a hat. He looked like the kind of guy who, if he hadn't killed a man himself, at least must have buried a body somewhere along the way. 
We approached them tentatively. Hey, uh, are you guys taking applications, I said. No, we just like to put a big-ass sign out front for shits and giggles and sit around here and talk to every dipshit that walks in here, the little man said in a raspy voice that suggested he'd been smoking since birth. Dan and I stood silently for a moment, unsure if we were supposed to laugh. I'm just busting your balls. Here's an application. I assume you're applying to be a cook. I'm Bob. This is Song Sue, he added, pointing to his colleague. Dan and I introduced ourselves, filled out the applications, and left. For the next few days, we continued to hunt for jobs, but later that week, I got a call from Song Sue. You guys got the job. Tell your tall friend that's pretty like a girl so I don't have to make two calls. Orientation's Monday, he said. That is awesome. Thank you, I said. Don't get excited. The job sucks and you make minimum wage. I think. I can't remember. Whatever. It's terrible pay. See you Monday, he replied. I didn't care how terrible the pay was going to be because I was going to be surrounded by women eight hours a day, five days a week, for the entire summer. I would literally be forced to talk to them. Maybe, just maybe, I was going to have sex. A couple days later, I sat alongside Dan and eight other guys in two rows of chairs in a room at the back of the recently finished Hooters, covered in fake street signs and orange, as Song Sue and Bob stood before us. Bob wore a mesh tank top and sported a mustache that would make any 1970s baseball player proud. He slowly puffed at a cigarette as he addressed the male members of his newly assembled staff. I know what you're all thinking. You're going to get some stank on your dick with one of these waitresses. That's why you took the job. Because the job sucks, Song Su added. Yep, job sucks, Bob nodded. Well, let me be the first to tell you, Bob continued. It's probably going to happen. You're probably going to nail one of them. I nailed one, and then I married her, he said. Whoa, whoa, you, whoa, no way, said a guy in the front row. Yes way, shithead, I took one down. Married her, she had my babies, the whole deal. Anyway, just do your work and don't piss me off and you'll have a good time, Bob said before spitting on the ground. After his speech, he gave us a tour of the kitchen and walk-in freezer, which he said was, quote, an awesome place to get a hand job if you're not in the middle of a dinner rush. <laughs> he finished up the tour by handing us black t-shirts with the Hooters logo emblazoned on the front. Then he welcomed us to the Hooters family, which transitioned into a bizarre tangent about his time in the military, where he warned us about, quote, the kind of scum that fuck a man's wife when he's overseas in the shit. As we drove out of the parking lot an hour and a half later, Dan made a comment that was hard to ignore. Dude, I don't want to put any extra pressure on you because I know you're all weird about this virginity shit, but if that Bob guy can have sex with a Hooters girl, you have to be able to. I agreed. I could barely contain my excitement. Sex had seemed so elusive, but now I felt like I was mere days away. Two days later, Dan and I walked into Hooters for our first shift, wearing our tan aprons and Hooters hats. We realized two things really quickly. One, Song Su wasn't lying. The job definitely sucked. Two, the majority of the girls working there had major emotional problems. And not cries too much emotional problems. More like stabs her boyfriend with a steak knife, then falls into a corner and starts whispering to herself emotional problems. Even when I knew how to talk to women like that, or wanted to, neither of which I did, the workday was so jam-packed with cleaning, scrubbing, wing battering, and dumpster emptying that I didn't even have a chance. One day I was washing dishes in the back when Bob poked his head in. Skippy, he said. Bob never remembered anyone's name, nor did he bother to cover up this fact. Skippy, today is not your day. I'm going to tell you a story. Guy walks into a Hooters, gets drunk, pukes his fucking guts out on the balcony. You clean it up, and afterwards I buy you a beer and tell you you're a swell guy at the end. What do you think? <laughs> I hate that story, Bob, I said. And maybe it was in the telling. He said, handing me a mop and a bucket in tow. 
Even though the balcony stood 50 feet from the ocean, the stench of vomit overpowered the smell of the sea. I had found, a, had found the mess and started scrubbing when I heard a woman's voice. I'm super sorry about that. I probably shouldn't have kept serving him beers, she said. I turned and saw that voice belonged to a waitress named Sarah. She was tall and thin with short blonde hair, and her breasts were tucked into her Hooners, Hooters uniform in a way that created a shelf below her chin that she could probably set her car keys on if she needed free hands. She had been fairly quiet in the month that I had worked there. My only interaction with her had been a week before when she asked me if we were out of baked beans, but she did so politely and with a pretty smile. It's, uh, it's no big deal, I said, suddenly realizing how impossible it was to look cool while cleaning up vomit. I'll buy you a beer afterwards. Actually, I have a six-pack in my car. We can drink them at the beach if you get off soon, she said. After Sarah went back to work, I ran downstairs to Dan, who was up to his elbows in batter, lathering up raw chicken wings. Guess who asked me to drink beers with her after work, I asked. I don't know, but Bob just handed me my paycheck. 83 hours after taxes, guess how much? $242 for 83 fucking hours, dude. I almost cried. I seriously almost cried. I hate this fucking job. I blame you, he said. Then he pulled the chicken wing out of the batter and hurled it against the wall. Uh, are you still mad or can I talk now, I asked. Yeah, I'm done. So which girl asked you to have beers? Guess. I don't know, Sarah? How, how did you know that? Because they're all named Sarah. I described which Sarah I meant and how the conversation had gone down as he battered the wings. Well, I'm not actually able to be happy right now, but if I were, I'd be happy for you, he said. I couldn't wait for work to end. I was so excited that I didn't even mind it when Bob made me clean the dumpster outside filled with rancid chicken wings. Around midnight, after I finished cleaning out the oil in the fryers, Sarah and I made our way down to her Honda Civic and grabbed the, cans of war- the six cans of warm, natty ice she had rolling around in her back seat. We sat on the cement wall of the boardwalk looking out at the ocean and cracked the beers open and began drinking. I smelled like raw chicken, flour, and vomit. After a few moments of silence, though, I began to panic. Here I was again, sitting next to a woman with no idea how to talk to her. Uh... That guy, uh, guy really threw up everywhere, I said as an opener. Yeah, that was really gross. I'd rather not talk about it, she replied. Yeah, totally, I said. I decided my only chance at this going well was to stop talking and just go in for a kiss. So I did, until I realized she had a mouthful of beer and my surprise kiss caused her to cough it up in my face. Oh my God, I'm really, really sorry, I said, patting her on the back as she coughed. <coughs> Wrong pipe, she said between coughs. Finally, she caught her breath. Let me finish a couple more beers, and then we'll make out. Is that okay? (laughs) She did, and we did. And then we did the same thing the next night, and the night after that. Then makeouts at night turned into hangouts during the day, and before I knew it, we'd been hanging out and making out for about a month. I'd made out with a few girls before her, but I'd never had a consistent makeout partner. I felt like an athlete in the midst of a winning streak. I wasn't sure why everything was working, but it was, and I didn't want to screw it up. You think she thinks you're her boyfriend? Asked Dan one day at work while we cleaned the stainless steel prep station in the back of the kitchen. Uh, I'm not sure. We kind of just only make out and rent movies and watch them and don't really talk a bunch. I like her, though. She's cool, I said. Well, you've been hanging out with her a lot, dude. If you like her, you should just ask her if she's your girlfriend because if she is, you guys should be having sex, not making out, Dan said. Yeah, get some stank on your hanglow, Bob yelled out from the manager's office where evidently he'd been eavesdropping. Dan was right. I did like Sarah. She was quiet, but very sweet and cute, and we had the same taste in rental movies. And if I liked her and she liked me, why weren't we having sex? That night, when I was at Sarah's little one-bedroom stucco apartment in Rancho Bernardo, we were making out on her fake leather couch the way we usually did. 
At one point, she got up to get a glass of water, and I followed her to the kitchen. So uh, this is a super weird question to ask, but do you tell people I'm your boyfriend, I asked. She lit up a cigarette and took a few puffs. No one's really asked me, but I mean, I like hanging out with you, so I guess you kind of are, she said. We haven't had sex, though, she added. Yeah, that's why I thought maybe we weren't, I said. Well, we can. I just hadn't because we'd just been hanging out for a couple weeks, and then I've been on my period. But why don't you rent a movie and come over Friday night? I could barely sleep the next two nights. I was so excited. I spent most of my adolescence fantasizing about sex, and now it was about to happen. thought about how it might go down. Maybe I'd take off her bra with one hand while saying something cool, but not douchey. (laughs) Then we'd turn off the lights and go at it for 45 minutes to an hour. And I'd give her two to three orgasms. (laughs) The anticipation was killing me. I had struggled with women my whole life. I'd never been comfortable in my own skin, never felt like a man. I just felt like a boy who got older. And while I didn't know what the steps were to start to feel like a man, I was sure that having sex must be one of them. The next day, I bounded into work, tossed on my apron, and found Dan cutting limes in the kitchen. You didn't come home last night. You guys do it? Dan asked. No, but she says I'm her boyfriend, and the only reason we haven't done it is because she's on her period, I said proudly. That's why God made the butthole, my friend. (laughs) One door closes, the other one opens, Bob chimed in from a few feet away. (laughs) That Friday evening, a couple hours before my shift ended, Bob came into the kitchen to let me off early for the night. Before you go, though, he said, your skinny buddy said you're about to get your cherry popped. I looked angrily behind Bob and spotted Dan trying to hide a smile as he scrubbed the mop sink. Let me tell you something, Bob said earnestly as he put his hand on my shoulder. I lost my virginity when I was 14 on mushrooms to a 200-pound woman who ran the laundromat by my dad's house. Then I spent the next two hours taking a dump in her toilet. Uh, okay. (laughs) Glad I got a chance to tell you that, he said, then patted me on the back. I got in my car and drove to the blockbuster near my apartment where I rented a copy of A Few Good Men. Sarah had never seen it. It was one of my favorite movies. As I drove over to Sarah's, I was filled with nerves, excitement, and a little bit of nausea. It was the same feeling I'd had when I got up with the bases loaded in the championship game of my last year of Little League. That ended with me getting hit in the stomach with a fastball and puking on home plate. I could only hope this would end differently. I got to her apartment shortly before midnight with a DVD, 12 condoms, and an entire chocolate cake. Which seemed like a good idea when I was in the drugstore checkout line, but immediately felt ridiculous as I carried it through Sarah's front door. We had a couple beers on our couch, then crawled into her double bed and put on a few good men. Usually about five minutes into a movie, we'd start making out and one of us would pause the film. This time, though, I hesitated to make the first move because for so long, the first move had been the only move. Now there was supposed to be a second move, doing it. Twenty minutes of the movie went by, then forty, and I still hadn't done anything. Finally, I started kissing Sarah's neck, then lifted up her shirt. I couldn't figure out how to unhook her bra, so I pulled it down and awkwardly put my mouth on her boob. Uh, what are you doing? Sarah asked. I popped my head up. What? I asked. Yeah, what are you doing? She asked again. Kissing your boob? Well, it's just they're talking about whether or not Jack Nicholson ordered the code red on that guy, she said, pointing at the TV screen. I grabbed the remote and pushed pause. There you go. You won't miss it, I said. She grabbed the remote and unpaused the movie. I want to see if he ordered the code red, she snapped. Uh, he ordered the code red. I don't think that he did. Of course he did. That's what the whole movie's about. I- I've seen the movie. Jeez, well, thanks for ruining it for me. R- ruining it for you? They tell you 45 minutes into the movie that he ordered the code red. The rest of the movie's just about whether Tom Cruise can get him to say he ordered the code red. 
Don't tell me what the movie's about. I know what it's about. By now, of course, I had absolutely destroyed any mood there was to begin with and hurt her feelings in the process. I needed to think of something fast. I'm sorry, do you want some cake? I asked. <laughs> uh, what? Let's just, let's just watch the movie. I promise I didn't ruin it for you, I said. Sorry, I'm just into the movie. Why don't we just have sex right now? That way we can watch the movie afterward and not have to worry about having sex, she said. Now that I'm older, it seems like a pretty obvious sign that your relationship is not going well if your partner asks you to get sex out of the way so she can finish a rented movie. <laughs> at the time, though, it sounded like a perfectly reasonable request, and I jumped at her offer. I pressed pause again, pulled out a condom, and started to open it, first with my hands, then with my teeth, then finally and frantically with both teeth and hands, which proved successful. Then I reached over and flipped off the lights, and for about a minute and 30 seconds, we had sex. In all of the thousands of sexual fantasies I'd had, I'd only concerned myself with making exactly one person happy, me. But as I rolled around on top of her like a zombie trying to maul a sleeping camper in a horror film, <laughs> I fully realized all the pressures that come with having sex with someone. I was supposed to try and make it as good for her as it was for me. I had responsibilities. And it soon became evident, as soon as I realized it would be over very quickly, that I didn't know what it would take to make things enjoyable for her. Before that night, when I'd heard someone say their first time was disappointing, it always rubbed me the wrong way, like hearing a millionaire tell you their life is too complicated. But now that I'd had sex, I was disappointed, because I'd sucked so badly at it. There was nothing romantic about it. After I finished, I collapsed on top of her, and she tilted her body, and I slid off. <laughs> she went to the bathroom, then got back in bed and hit the play button on the remote. I was asleep before Jack Nicholson yelled, you can't handle the truth. The next morning, Sarah left early to pick her sister up from the airport. When I woke, she had already gone. I drove back to my apartment, unsure whether what had happened could be considered a success. When I walked in, Dan was having breakfast. Did you do it? He asked as soon as I walked in. I did it, I said. Let me guess. Five minutes. Mm, divided by two and then maybe minus another minute, I think. <laughs> Look who just became a man, he said laughing. A couple days later, Sarah called me while I was at work. Bob called me into his office and handed me the phone. I don't like personal calls, Skippy, he said. Sorry, I'll make it quick, I said, and picked up the phone. What's up, I said to the receiver. What was up was she thought we should break up. So you're really nice, but I just don't think I'm going to be working at Hooters anymore and it'll be hard for us to see each other and stuff, she said. Okay, I said, trying not to reveal my hurt feelings. Okay, sorry, could you put Bob back on? I want to tell him where to send my last check. I handed Bob the phone. She needs to talk to you, I said. I turned to walk away. Hey, Bob said, stopping me. He held his hand over the receiver. Just make sure you remember what she looked like naked so you can jerk off to her later, bud. <laughs> I walked into the kitchen and told Dan the news, trying to hide my embarrassment. Well, at least you got to have sex, right, he said. I kept waiting for that to register with me, but the truth is I felt no more like a man than I had felt before I'd had sex. Bob came out of the office and grabbed a six-pack of Bud Lights. We need to have a quick chat. Grab yourself a brewski, come meet me on the upstairs balcony, said to me before walking upstairs. Nothing imported, I got corporate on my ass. I grabbed a Bud Light and headed up to the balcony where Bob was sitting at an open table with the ocean behind him. In the minute I'd, I'd taken to find a beer and head upstairs, he'd already finished one beer and was halfway through another. I sat down and cracked one open. Nothing better in a sunny day than a beer and another dude's heart on, he said. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just messing with you. I'm not trying to pull any gay stuff on you, he said, laughing loudly. Wait, how old are you? He asked, his laugh immediately ceasing. Twenty. 
He yanked the beer from my hands and set it down next to him. Fuck me, I can't have underage drinking on the premises. Better than that, Bob, he said to himself before chugging the rest of his open beer. Bob, what did you want to talk to me about? Well, I consider the kitchen staff here to be my family, he started. Well, what about your wife and kid? Yeah, yeah, but I mean the kid's too. He's not even a person. <laughs> and the wife, the wife's the wife. But you guys here, when one of you is cut, I bleed. And I know some girl just gave you a dick up the ass, and I know what that can do to a man. But you're on a team here, and I need to know that you are still focused, and it's not going to affect your work, he said. Uh, Bob, I wash dishes. And you are one of the three best I've ever seen at it. Swear to Jesus, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. But I'm not going to sit by and watch your skills erode because some woman has got you unfocused, he said. Then he grabbed the beer he'd confiscated from me and pounded half of it. Uh, I'll be focused, I said. Good, because that's what a man does. He takes his shots, and then he goes back into that dish pit, and he scrubs the shit out of some dishes, he said. Stand, then he stood up and patted me on the back as he walked past me. I went back to the kitchen where a mountain of dishes had piled up in my absence. I put on a pair of yellow rubber gloves and turned on the hot water and got to work scrubbing. Bob was wrong. Washing a lot of dishes did not make me feel like a man. Right at that minute, though, neither did having sex. A rite of passage I'd expected to mean so much had left me feeling no different at all. I had no idea when I would feel like a man or what it would take. All I could safely say was that I was a boy who had had sex and was really, really good at washing dishes, and that would have to be enough for now. Thank you. That was uh, one of uh, one of I think the f that was one of the first stories I wrote when I did the book proposal. It was definitely in the book proposal. I think uh, the way this sort of after shit my dad says came out. Uh, I didn't really have an idea for a second book, and I didn't want to force anything. And so maybe like six months later, uh, and meanwhile, I was working on the, that aforementioned shitty television show based off of the book. And I was, uh, I was working, and things had been going really well with my girlfriend at the time. And so I decided, you know, uh, I think I want to propose. I wasn't sure exactly what I was supposed to be feeling, but it felt like that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so I bought the ring, and I was really, really nervous, and I hadn't told anybody about it. And so I thought, you know what, I, got, I was supposed to do it on a Saturday, and this was Friday. It was the day before. And I said, you know, I got I to gotta say this to someone, like, out loud. I just gotta ha somebody's got to hear this before I do it. And uh, you know, I looked around, and my mom was gone, and uh, my brothers didn't live near me, and then there was my dad. <laughs> and I was like, all right, we're going to lunch, Dad. He was like, all right. And there's only one place he'll eat lunch in all of San Diego. Just a thousand restaurants in the whole city. Only one place he'll eat lunch. And uh, so I take him to that place. We're sitting down, and I'm getting more and more nervous just saying it to him. It's, it's nerve-wracking. And so we're sitting there, and he's perusing the menu, even though he gets the same thing every single time. And uh, I said, all right, well, I have big news. I'm going to propose to Amanda. And he, and he looks at me and he goes, he's looking at me and he goes, good for you. I'm going to have the romaine and watercress salad. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Well, well good for you too. Um, <laughs> but what about what I said? And he was like, well, what about it? And <laughs> I said, well, why aren't you more excited about this? You know, like this is a big deal for me. He's like, what have you ever seen me excited about anything? 
I'm like, it's a fair point, but I need some kind of, you know, I need, I need to feel like a, a, a making the right choice, you know? And, and so he said, meanwhile, this is also, I just you know, he's the guy who at my sixth grade graduation afterwards, I'm like, you know, in my fake little sixth grade cap and gown. And I'm like, what'd you think? He's like, boring as dog shit. <laughs> so, you know, I'd pick the wrong guy to tell. But uh, he said, all right, well, here's what I think you should do. I think you should go. Here's what I did before I proposed to your mom. I went to the park. I smoked some weed. And I thought about all my relationships with women and what I learned about myself, what I learned about them, what I learned about what I like, what I don't like. And then at the end of the day, I put all that towards whether or not I wanted to propose to your mom. He goes, and guess what? I did. I'm like, thanks, fucking spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so he says, I suggest that's what you do. And so I did. And I didn't smoke any weed, but I went to the park and I spent the day there just sort of thinking about it. And, and you know, I decided at the end of the day I did want to propose. But the other thing that kind of hit me is that, like, I think, you know, when we all go through breakups and relationships, at the time, they're just really painful. Whether you broke up with somebody or somebody broke up with you, it just feels like a loss. It feels like nothing good is coming from it. It feels like, uh, I just wasted a year of my life, two years of my life, whatever. And, and it just feels really shitty. And I remember when I finally proposed to my wife, I, I thought, you know what, all those things, they're, it, it, love is kind of the only thing where you could lose every single time, but if you win just once, then you win. You know, it's one of the only things like that, I think, you know, you can go through, if you, if, if at your work you do nine, you know, 20 projects and 19 of them are terrible and one is good, they're like, well, you're fired. Why'd you do 19 shitty projects? But if you have 20 relationships and 19 of them are horrible and one of them works, then you come out a winner. And so I think I wanted to ch- sort of chart that and it was therapeutic, I think for me, but I thought also, you know, I feel like people can relate to all of these mistakes we make and all of the awkward things that happen to us when we're trying to figure out who we are and at the same time how we're going to coexist with someone and find a husband or wife. Uh, and so I think that's, that's hopefully what I, what I captured in the book. So does anybody have any questions or anything like that? How's it going, man? Good. Um, so obviously when you wrote the first book you had not done the television show yet so in writing this book did you find that you were writing with the possibility in mind that some of these stories might be turned into scene work and scripts Um, and if so how did that change your uh, your thought process when coming up with all the stories yeah uh, definitely I mean my background was in screenwriting that's what I'd been doing I'd been writing for magazines and writing and doing screenwriting uh, not super successfully, but I had sold one script and I had optioned another, but it was like not quite enough money for me to quit my job. But that was all my training was in screenwriting. And so when I, even when I wrote the first book, I just tend to write a lot more dialogue than I do uh, description. It just comes a lot easier to me. And it's also, especially since it's nonfiction, it's like I know what the conversation was and I can lay it out nicely. Um, and so in this one, I actually, after I wrote the book proposal, uh, the, the book proposal went to HarperCollins, but it also went to, as it does, as you do anything uh, in an L.A., when you send something out, it also goes to studios and it also goes to networks. And so Warner Brothers said, well, listen, we love this as an as a area for a show and we'd like to buy it as a show. 
And I said, well, that's great. I have written none of this book. I've written four, four chapters of it, you know? And there's 12, there's, was, at the time I was thinking there'd be 12 to, you know, 13 in the book. And so definitely I think it was in the back of my mind when I was writing this, but I was just trying to figure out the best way to tell a story and lay these things out. And uh, ultimately I think I just write a lot more dialogue. I don't know if that's because I'm lazy or not super intelligent, but <laughs> either way, I think prose writing is, is really difficult and I, and I didn't feel comfortable just like laying in a lot of thick description, you know? So yeah, I tend to write, I tend to write stuff that feels a little bit more cinematic because that's what my training was. Hey, what's up? Hey. At any point, do you ever write something where you're just like, oh God, I don't want to have this written. I don't want to have this said about myself or are you pretty much free and open about all your experiences and feelings and emotions and putting that into everything that you write? You know, uh, I write stuff all the time that I, I get embarrassed about. I, I signed a book yesterday where I was like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> this is so embarrassing. I put this in somebody's book. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I feel self-conscious about things sometimes. I mean, it's easier to write when you're just by yourself, which is what, how, you know, you write a book, you're just by yourself. So you have this like plausible deniability that like no one will ever read it, um, which, you know, probably doesn't please the publisher to hear. But, <laughs> but like... I, I think that's how I get away with it. it. It's just like, I think these things don't work unless you're really, really honest. I think as soon as you read something where somebody's pulling punches, you sense it as a reader and you, you feel like you kind of disengage. I think it like breaks the trust between the person writing and the person reading it. And I also think like, you know, if you read something like David Sedaris, he's amazing, right? He's, his family is like so fucked up and like his whole life is so crazy and so he's, he sort of, you can tell he kind of like hides behind the fact that he's in this world of chaos. With me, my dad's like an insane human being. Like he's not, like he's a crazy, crazy guy. And I think a part of that allows me to kind of just hide behind that because the focus is on him. You know, he's, he's when he's in these stories, he's a larger than life personality. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like just reading this right now in front of a bunch of people was a little embarrassing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's the only way it works. Really loved it, by the way. It was great. Awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a couple of questions on this side of the room. Right here, second row. Hey, uh, when you're writing memoiristic stuff, do you ever um, feel protective? Like, you want to, like, change names? Not of yourself, but of, like, other characters. Or do you just hope that everyone will forgive you? <laughs> No, I don't want to get sued. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's, this is my rule when I write stuff. Uh, if I write stuff with somebody in it that I'm still in contact with, then I let them read it first. And if they have a problem with it, then I take it out. I, I just let them have veto power. I don't argue with them or anything like that. If I'm not in contact with them, for instance, Sarah in this, in this uh, story, her name's not Sarah. And she doesn't look exactly how I described her. And the time period's a little different. So I do change that kind of stuff. The, funny, the, the thing that I learned the most is like when I wrote Shit My Dad Says, um, I had that rule with my dad. I was like, all right, you know, I told him, I was like, let me read you, as I'm writing it, let me read it to you. And he's like, no, I don't want to read fucking part of a book. Just give me the whole book and I'll read it. And then, and then, I'll, and then I'll take out what I don't like and, or I'll say you can't do it. I'm like... So I'm going to write a whole book, and then at the end, you might just be like, I don't want this? He was like, God damn right. So, so I did. I wrote a whole book. 
And then after I finished the whole book, I go, I, he's like, all right, now I want to read it. And I'm like, okay. And so I send him and he, he has, I send him an email and he's like, I don't read shit off a computer screen. He's like, come over to my house, print it out, bring it to me. So I drive over to, I drove over to his house. I bring this stack of papers. I hand it to him. I go to walk away. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm leaving while you read this like 200 page book. He's like, you're sitting right the fuck next to me. He's like, not on the other side of the table, not over there. You're sitting right next to me. Which, for anybody who makes anything, you guys make like movies or you draw something, whatever, it's, it's terrible being in next to the person who's like consuming the media you've just made. Because like, especially if it's a comedy, because if they're not laughing, you're like, ah, God. Like every time I give something to my wife to read, I had to stop doing it because I'd be like, why aren't you laughing? She's like, just let me read the, <laughs> let me read the thing. So I'm sitting next to my dad five hours. I sit next to him. Right? I'm, I've read the paper nine times over at this point because that's all there is next to him. And he, he doesn't want me to get up and do anything. So he says, he's, and he's scribbling something. Every like five pages, he's scribbling something. And I'm like, what is he scribbling? What is he doing? This is, ah, he's this is freaking me out. I'm already neurotic, guys. It's stressing me out. So he goes, all right, I'm ready after five hours. He's got the bag. He goes, turn to page five. I'm like, okay. He goes, page five. Top of page five, you said I hopped into a car. He's like, when the fuck have you ever seen me hop into anything? <laughs> He's like, and, he, and then he goes, he goes, you changed that or the book doesn't go. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you got into the car. How's that? Is that good? He's like, perfect. He's like, page 10, you said I brush my hair. I'm not a fucking woman. I don't brush my hair. I comb. I have a comb and I comb it. I'm like, okay, you combed your hair, sorry. And that was like his only, like, so I actually, I actually kept that manuscript that he had written the scribbles on because I thought it was like the funniest thing ever. So I just, I have that in my house, like locked up. It's like my favorite thing. So yeah, that's, that's basically my, my rule. I, do, I change names if I don't see the people anymore. Although in the first book, there's a story about where I go to Mexico and uh, I go with this girl and I changed her name because I, I hadn't talked to her in like five or six years. And uh, then one day I get a call from this number on my phone, and I didn't know what it was, and so I, I answered it, and she's like, hey, hey, and, and it was her, and she's like, so I read your book, and uh, that's so weird that you went to Mexico, like, around the same time we did with another girl that wasn't me. <laughs> and I was like, pause, and I was like, that is so weird, but it happened. <laughs> And that was a, then she never said anything else. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of my thing. <laughs> When's this one going on to uh, TV or a movie? Well, we sold uh, my writing, because for, for screenwriting, I have a partner. And uh, we sold it to Warner Brothers a few months ago, but we we're developing with this, this writer named Bill Lawrence who did like scrubs and yeah, Bill is fantastic. Bill is like one of the, he scrubs Cougar Town, Spin City, if you don't know who he is. And he's just like an amazingly talented guy. And I sat down with Bill, uh, early on my writing partner I had and he, Bill was just like, well, what kind of show you want to make? And it's like, he's one of those guys who just wants to help you make the best show he can. Cause he's already, he's got like Scrooge McDuck kind of money. He just like, you know, he's got like a pit of gold coins. So he doesn't care. He's uh, he's not like trying to get rich off you anymore. Uh, So he just wants to help make the best show he can. And so we're developing it with Bill and he's overseeing it. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, 
we're gonna we'll we'll write the pilot and then uh hopefully the pilot will get ordered and if it got ordered and people liked it that it would go to series so that the series the soonest that would happen would be that's a lot of ifs by the way the soonest that would happen would be next fall did you start a trend with your first book like where you know you see like youtube videos of like people doing similar things that you wrote in your book on the first book on like we do you mean like the shit so-and-so says things yeah, yeah. it's funny like uh so yeah, you're, he's referring to like I don't know if you guys seen like the shit girls say, shit New Yorkers say, shit like uh, black women say to Asian girls. Like there's everything that you can do uh, there. And the funny thing is, is like uh, a lot of them are just like blatantly racial stereotypes. They're like very racist videos, I think. Like or like just for very base. And uh, but like I guess I'm sort of the cause of them. It just sort of feels like I gave the internet herpes. It's like the worst. <laughs> It's like the it's like the worst thing. Um, I, I actually I remember seeing like the first the shit girls say thing, and I was like, oh, that's funny. And then like just a billion of those. I, I blame them, not me. <laughs> you mentioned the TV show, and that it sucked. In your opinion, if you're comfortable, yeah, well, sure. Why? Uh, I think the biggest thing is, is like my dad is unintentionally funny. I mean, that's how I enjoy him the most. He's when he tells jokes, it's just like weird dad jokes that all of our dads tell, and it's not that funny. But, but he rarely does that. He's just kind of a guy who speaks his mind, and it's very unintentional when he's humorous. But then when you take it to like a multi-camera sitcom format where you have a live audience, you have to have like two or three jokes a page, and characters have to tell jokes. And it feels really contrived just right off the bat, you know? And so I think it was the wrong format for it. And then I also think the biggest problem was the Twitter feed, it was called Shit My Dad Says, and we can't even say the title on the network that it was running. So it's like the, the sort of, my, I like to say my dad, profanity, like curse words are the oils with which he paints. So, <laughs> so if you can't use those in a TV show, it's really difficult to make it work. And I think we just never really figured it out, and it was the wrong format, and we kept trying to squeeze, you know, a circle into a square kind of deal or vice versa. Great. Thank you. And we have time for two more questions. Next book. <laughs> like, do you want me to get off stage so the next person can come? <laughs> no. Your next book. Is it in the works? Uh, get out of here. Next book. Um, <laughs> no, no, there's no... Uh, right now, there's no next book in the works. Uh, I like it to just... When I feel excited to write something then I, then, and I have an idea that I think is worth asking somebody to pay 15 to $20 for it, then I'll do something. But I think there's so often, like... I don't know. I, I feel like you can always tell when an author rushes something out just to try to capitalize off the success of the first thing. It's like I, I remember I was, it's like going to see a band. You love their free album, and then you get there, and they're like, we're going to play some stuff we came up with a couple days ago in the garage. I'm like, no, play this shit off the first album. That's why I paid the money for this. So uh, I think for right now, I don't have any plans for one. But who knows? Another question right here in the front row. Would you ever consider doing a stand-up? No, absolutely not. I think uh, stand-up takes like a certain... I have a lot of buddies that do stand-up, and they have like a stage presence to them. And, and they, I, I think stand-up is a lot about your presentation and your voice, and those are two things I don't have. So uh, like the fir- when, the, with the per- when the first book came out, they were like, do you want to read the audio book? I'm like, do you want to listen to my voice for 
three hours? Absolutely not. I would hurl that audiobook from my car and as fast as possible. So I don't, I, it's not really my, my thing, but you know, I, I really have a lot of appreciation for people that can do it well. All right, well, thank you guys for coming out. I really appreciate it, and I hope you, hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. thank you again to Justin Halpern. The book, I Suck at Girls, it's available right now in the iBook store. There's two versions. There's an enhanced version available in the iBook store that has really funny video interviews. Oh, yeah, the, the yeah. Enhanced version, that enhanced version is actually the only version that, or the only time my dad has done a video interview. He does it with me. So there's actually like maybe eight minutes of video clips where I'm just, it's basically just me being like, what, you know, asking him a question, then I cut myself out and just put his answer on. So uh, it's worth it if you've never, if you're curious of what he's like, because um, he's, he's, uh, he's definitely an interesting guy. And that's available on the iBooks. How lucky is that, right? What are the odds that it would be there? Thank you again, Crazy. Justin Halpern. Thank you. Give it up, guys.